Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Flight Through Entirety, the only Doctor Who podcast which really enjoys eating its own oil. And we're doing it now. I'm Nathan. I'm James. I'm Todd. And I'm Stephen. It's 29th of April 2006, and a daft little tea time science fiction program is about to emotionally devastate a whole generation of ageing fans. Kleenex is at the ready, everyone. It's time for a school reunion. So, um, Stephen, is this one of the many Doctor Who episodes that makes you cry? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This one reduces <laughs> me to tears every single time. I think I probably start crying 15 minutes in, you know, <laughs> just in anticipation. Really? <laughs> well, yeah. Really? I've got a stone cold dead heart, <laughs> you know. I don't cry at this anymore. Okay. Ever. I think, you know, let's, let's start off with this. I think the fact that, you know, Liz is gone. We don't have Liz anymore. Mm. Just seeing her without her knowing who the doctor is, He's trying to make you cry. Now. I'm trying to make Tom cry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, listeners, they're looking directly at me. Um, so yeah, so just for the first time that we see her, I just think about how wonderful she was. God, you fools! <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I'm tearing up as we speak. Okay, I well up from like the moment she comes on screen. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, I don't. It's always the end bit with that. My Sarah goodbye, my Sarah Jane, with the music. You know, that's where. It gets me, but up to that point, no. no. Um, the first time, obviously, when we first saw this, yes, yeah. you know, it was like oh, all the <laughs> way through. But now I'm sort of yeah, yeah, less so. But I can't, I can't distinguish it from my childhood memories of watching Sarah Jane Smith and, and the Fourth Doctor. So that's what's immediately brought to mind, and I think it's probably intentional in terms of the story too. But I, I just sort of get cast back to that, and there's a there's a shedding of a tear, I guess, for for the time in between, and obviously what's happened uh, in the meantime as well. Uh, she was my first companion. Like I've said before, mm. that my first Doctor Who story was Death to the Daleks, and really the only two possible people that they could have brought back would have been Joe and Sarah. Sure. Yeah, and both of them are on the show for roughly the same time. You know, Sarah's there for a bit longer. But both of them are the ones that create that female companion dynamic that the new show mm. is doing. Yes, I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking, who else could they have brought back if they couldn't have got Elizabeth Sladen? And um, like you, I thought, yeah, Katie Manning as, as Joe. Yeah. And I just kind of went through everybody else and I thought, who else is there? I mean, the only other person I really thought of was Tegan, but I don't think that character would have worked in this context. It would have to be a completely different type of story. But Yeah, you couldn't um, sell a story where Tegan was kind of the Doctor's ex-girlfriend <laughs> in any way. No, not at all. Um, there would have been a very rocky relationship. <laughs> but also I think it's quite incredible too the fact that David Tennant is like three episodes into his reign as the Doctor and suddenly here, you know, he's with this ex-companion, like I was thinking like if Eccleston had continued on, how would this have played out, you know? Would it be just the same thing? Like it's, you know, he's a bit older than Tennant, you know? Yeah. And, and certainly more the age that Tom was when he was mm. first the Doctor with Sarah Jane. I don't think it would have had as much 
emotional depth and chemistry. As, as Tennant, yeah, yeah. So I mean, Tennant is a huge fan, and that's obvious from his performance yeah. and and the way he just smiles at her, you know, yeah. when she first turns up. I love the fact that she's just walking down some stairs, talking to the headmaster. It's 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 all quite subtle. New fans wouldn't have a clue who she is, and, yeah. and so she's just another character. For me, it's like I I always think about what would new fans be thinking about having this old companion in? Would would they get as emotional as what we get? Would they be moved at all? I think, though, for new fans, it does shed a light on the relationship between the Doctor and Rose, and the next episode's going to do that as well. Mm. Like, it's going to start to interrogate that relationship because this is really the height of their relationship this season isn't it and you know last week we had them larking about and and laughing and you know running hand in hand and all of that sort of thing like they were very very close and this kind of interrogates that or puts it in quite a different light I think that's true, but also from um, an outsider's point of view, if you're not a New Who fan, if you're someone who maybe grew up watching Doctor Who decades ago, this sort of like taps into that childhood memory. And of course, you're going to remember Sarah Jane. I think, you know, it's one of the, the most iconic pairings of classic Doctor Who, along with, with Katie and John as well. Um, and I think you're right, Todd. I don't think you can sort of pair it with uh, with any other old companion because there probably wasn't the connection, I guess. Uh, there certainly wasn't the ratings. Uh, you know, we're talking about the height of Doctor Who. Uh, in this sort of mid-70s period. So it had to be, it had to be Elizabeth Sladen. Both of these companions also investigate things, you know. Joe was with Unit investigating, mm, Sarah was an investigative ju- journalist. Yeah. Um, whereas when you look at the background of so many others, they're not the yeah. same thing, you know. They don't it gives you an in. Yeah, it gives you an in. Mm. I think also, I mean, I agree with you, Stephen, the, um, she's the right choice mm. because... She doesn't have an appeal just for a classic series fan. She has an appeal for a viewer of the 70s. Mm. Like, she appeals to the general audience of the 70s. If you're going to remember a companion, you're going to, you're going to yeah, remember yeah, Sarah Jane it. Smith. Yeah. She is the Doctor Who companion. I think for Russell, probably the iconic pairing is the Doctor and Joe. And I think it's telling that he cast Billy Piper, who looks a bit like Joe, and uses the Pertwee title sequence, you know, sort of revamped as his title sequence. I think that that's his pairing. And given that he's a little bit older, like he's uh, he's got a few years on me, or a couple of years Same on me. Same age as the show. Yeah. But it's very clear that when Russell was watching the show, he was imagining that he was Katie or he was Sarah. Like that was who he was identifying with, I think. Not in drag. <laughs> I love all the intro stuff when they mention like John Smith, like Yes, she says I used to have a friend who went by that name. It's so beautiful. Just the sheer enthusiasm on Tennant's face when he sees her. It seems so real. I'll have lots of complaints about David Tennant's performance. (laughs) But when he's genuine, when he's showing real emotion, uh, and we'll talk more about that next week probably, he's wonderful. Mm. He's so great. His little Uh, fanboy heart is exploding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did you know this script was written in a really short time frame? So, this is Toby Whithouse's first episode? But he wasn't the original writer for the story. Okay. Um, Initially, uh, 
much like we discussed last week on Tooth and Claw, Russell got a, a writer who was new to the show to write a, a script treatment for it with the shopping list set in a school, yeah. Sarah Jane Smith, K-9. And the writer went to Ray and came back with a script set in an army base. <laughs> um, and it, it didn't really gel. And then they admitted that Doctor Who probably wasn't for them <laughs> and, um, and bowed out. Um, and so Toby was asked to write this sort of very late stage and, and was delivered very quickly. But it's still kind of brilliant. Yeah, I think it's great. It, it absolutely is because I don't think the plot really matters here. It's the emotional heartbeats of the story that are the most important um, for me and I think for most other viewers as well. And I've said this before, I think, but um, for me, I don't really care about the Blizz Blaz pop mechanics and how it all sort of makes sense as long as it has that emotional reward and payoff. And having Sarah Jane Smith meet the Doctor again is like, that's it as a sentence. That's all you need for a Doctor Who episode to work. <laughs> Who cares about the plot? Exactly. No, I, I'm, I'm very much in agreement with you on that. I think I've always enjoyed storytelling, in, not just Doctor Who, storytelling in general, which... I feel an emotional connection yeah. or resonance with. And and that's probably why I still, you know, 10, 15 years later, enjoy Russell's Doctor Who more yeah. than anything that's come after it. I actually think it does a really deft job of balancing the demands of being a Doctor Who episode with that emotional plot. And, you know, sometimes they think it would be nice to have a break from aliens and silly things and just do an episode like this without the subplot. Uh, and sometimes you have episodes like this with a very rudimentary subplot like Boomtown mm. or Power of Three. Mm. But this one, I think, gets it right. So, you're talking about the Krillotane yeah. subplot. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I always felt that that was the weakest part of this story and I've never considered this story better than a 7 out of 10, which might shock some people. Um, but coming back and watching this season, which I think I've commented already that this is my least favourite of the first five years of, of oh, Doctor wow. Who, um, it's quite interesting because I actually liked this more. And the Krillotane subplot was the weakness yeah. in this story. But... Like I've previously commented how I sort of edit out things in my head and can't remember things, there was certainly a lot more dialogue that I suddenly wasn't remembering going, okay, so they actually do explain this. So I, I actually enjoyed that a lot more. So actually this has gone up from a seven to an eight for me. Uh, I think Anthony Stewart Head is just delicious in in his role oh. as the headmaster. I mean, you know, that first sequence where he takes that girl into that room and then Eats her. Devours her. <laughs> like women saying, oh, my goodness. The little orphan girl. <laughs> oh, the little orphan girl. Like, I mean, no the one to miss you. <laughs> I mean, the Krillotane, like, you know, they don't really care very much to keep everything sort of hush-hush. I mean, Kenny walks in and looks down and, like, that one teacher oh, Mr. Wagner, yeah. Krillotane under, under the desk and then he's not. It's sort of like, well, just go away. Like, it's like you could have eaten him at this point and then – that exploding woman, like she does that, you know, like, like it's <laughs> so funny. It is so funny, but it's sort of like, well, we're not really hushing it up, and we're not going to do away with you, um, 
Rose, but just gonna say, oh no, don't ring the ambulance. She just does that, you know. It's it's so paper thin, is yeah, the word I'm yeah. Looking, but it makes it hilarious. Well, I think Kenny as well, who is the little kid who isn't eating the crillotane oil <laughs> because he can't eat chips because he's on a special diet. Mm. Like you would think that he would be the first one that they would eat, you know, so that uh, is that Russell fat shaming? <laughs> constantly fat shaming. <laughs> There are things like that. But, I mean, then you've got the counterbalance, which is um, the big confrontation between the doctor and the headmaster in the swimming pool. And, again, that's just fantastic. And I I love the fact that, again, David Tennant's doctor talks about you've got one chance. Yeah. And, yeah, and Anthony Stewart Head just – if it wasn't for him, I think that plot – possibly would not hang together as there wouldn't be as much gravitas to it i always thought that he would have been a great doctor back in the day like you know when he was on buffy i always thought he would be perfect mm-hmm. as the doctor he did audition for the tv movie oh did he mm. but everyone did though mm. well yes everybody did. <laughs> um, <laughs> including beryl reed <laughs> <laughs> she would have been amazing screen tests actually on the dvd oh really oh, yeah i think so He's certainly having fun doing scenery chewing and being terribly camp and stuff. But it works. And I also think the Krillotane actually work. They look very cartoonish, but I actually really like them. Oh, I do too. I think um, there's one shot of one flying in front of the moon, which I think is spectacular. And there's one where they're running down the corridors and the camera is kind of trying to keep up with them. You know, they're running down the corridors and they're moving from floor to ceiling and the camera's going around in a sort of circular motion, Mm. but it's tracking them. It's just behind them. It's good. Yeah. So, for me, that's the aspect of the episode that really did improve on this watch, which I was really pleased about. I was never down on it in the first place, but what I what I will admit is that it is absolutely the subplot, and it's also a subplot that maybe comes from young adult or certainly Roald Dahl kind of schoolyard fairy tale um, genre. You know, it felt like the witches in many regards. Um, you know, you have that kind of uh, fairy tale aspect that we we see throughout Doctor Who, but most explicitly here, this is something that should not exist or, or probably oughtn't exist in sort of like the the general kind of mood of a Doctor Who story, but it. It does, and it's great, and it kind of feels like a, a, a kid's fairy tale. Um, and again, because that's that's the subplot. The, the real plot is about uh, Sarah Jane Smith and, and the way in which the Doctor-Companion relationship is defined and redefined, particularly for a new Who era. You're totally right about redefining. Everything's been redefined here. The relationship between Rose and the Doctor mm. is put under a spotlight because of Sarah Jane Smith, like the Mrs. and the X. Yes. Um, and then working Mickey into the mix and and his realisation of who he is and what he wants and redefining all that. I mean, you know, throughout the episode, realising, like, he's the tin dog, he doesn't want to be the tin dog, and then at the end, you know, can I come on board? And the face that Rose... (laughs) She's such a surly little cow. (laughs) You know, he wasn't actually in the original draft of the script. He wasn't in it at all. Oh, really? He was a late addition. I think he's brilliant in this, and I think it does give closure to that plot about him being reluctant to come with the Doctor. True. Like he's not invited in Rose. Uh, he tells the Doctor that he can't bear to go with him at the end of World War Three, and now finally he's sort of proved himself by doing his rescue mission and um, helping Rose and the Doctor here, and he decides, yeah, you know, like, I'm ready to go with you. There's so much growth in this episode for him from – Finding all the dead rats, rats, and <laughs> and then looking at the 
Quillotane on the on the roof and running out of the school and and you know being perhaps part of the character that was in season one, and then you know pulling the plug at the end, you know yep. forming a bond with K nine or you yeah. know stepping up and then realizing that he can step up, and I think over the course of this episode and the next two, Noel's performance is as good as ever. Like yeah. it really it really shows such a growth to his character and really puts a spotlight on the character I think of Rose and perhaps the growth that she doesn't actually have compared to him. Although it does give Rose different things to do, mm. you know. Like I think that it helps Rose in that sense, even if it sort of brings up how kind of self-involved she can be. But there is a moment where she's not self-involved. And this is one of my niggles with this episode is how quickly Sarah arcs up at Rose. Like, literally straight away, she's a bitch to her. And I really hate it. Like, I really hate she's the first line, like the way in which the character delivers whatever, the hello or whatever she says to to well, Rose. there's something about, oh, you. I can tell you're getting older, your companions yeah. are getting younger. Mm, yeah. And it's just like... Getting younger. Yeah. I'm not an assistant. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and it's sort of like, well, thanks for that, Sarah. But Sarah was always very prickly, fair enough. But then we have to have this conflict between them, which is all then just solved over a big name-calling thing and lots of laughter that seems to go on far too long. And failing the Bechdel test at the same time. <laughs> like it really, really ostentatiously failing to do the Bechdel test. I mean, Sarah is just jealous and so they're fighting over a man. So, so do you know how they got that laughter? No. Um, Tennant walked in with a false moustache on, <laughs> <laughs> which is why Billy kind of points at him as she's laughing <laughs> and cracking up. Uh, Brilliant. It's great. The laughter's great. That's a great sequence. But what's really good is that when Sarah mentions the Loch Ness Monster, it's Rose that diffuses that entire situation and begins to laugh. She could continue on being a, yeah. being, mm. escalating that argument, but she doesn't. And it's a really great moment for her. So it's just a little thing in the episode that oh, yeah, it drags it down a little bit for me. It's just a niggle that I kind of go, really, do we have to have this artificial – I can see why yeah. why we're going this way and, and we're, we're looking at – you know, the relationship between the Doctor and why he leaves companions behind and it's sort of a lot of foreshadowing for what's going to come in the future. For New Who fans, I think, anyway, to sort of, well, you need to think about this, guys. Mm. They're not going to be around forever and, and why would that be? It could have been a lot darker, you know. Um, apparently in one of the early drafts of the script, Sarah was written as being a recovering alcoholic. Oh, God, oh, no, that wouldn't have worked. <laughs> but Liz said no. Yeah, Thank God. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's the wrong tone for Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah absolutely. T- too dark, far too dark. Yeah, but I also think, like within the, the mechanics of the story as well, you, need, you needed to have that scene between Sarah Jane and 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 Rose. Not just obviously in, in terms of the exploration and the definition and the redefinition of the companion, but in the way in which like there's three really nice pairings in this story. One of them is Elizabeth Slade and and, and Billy Piper. I think Noel Clark um, as Mickey and K Nine are kind of like the tin dog, if you like. And then you have David Tennant with um, with that. As you said, Todd, before that incredible scene um, with Anthony Head. So I think in terms of the way in which the story's constructed as well, there's those lovely three pairings that work together too. I think that argument serves another really important purpose as well because we've had past Doctor Who episodes 
from the classic series hinted at. Mm. And last week we had a reference to Jamie McCrimmon. Yeah. But this is the first acknowledgement that the classic series happened in this continuity. That's and true. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, they've been very, very careful, particularly in Series 1, not to make the show into a sort of train-spotting show where you needed a knowledge of Mm -hmm. 26 seasons. (laughs) You know, you needed every Jean-Marc Lefissier book and every Peter Haining book on your shelves in order to be allowed in to enjoy this show. They very, very definitely don't do that. And here is the first time they do it. And I think it's... It's a renewed confidence after their success last year, but I still think it's a little bit of a risk, and I think it's mitigated a bit by Tennant himself being mm. such a fan of the show. I agree with you, Nathan. I think that, um, like, even in his conversation, his, his initial conversation outside the TARDIS with Sarah, she goes, you've regenerated, and he goes several times. Yeah. There's this acknowledgement of the history of the show without necessarily getting too bogged down in it. And by doing the fight sequence with a list of things, again, yeah. you're, you're doing it in a, in a funny enough way that we're not saying, well, I had a an adventure with um, – yeah, I met Belal. The beast of Agador, and I met <laughs> Belal, and, and Belal was my best friend for five minutes. Like, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And I um, told him to watch out. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, the thing is that a new fan, particularly a young new fan, is going to enjoy Billy's references to previous episodes. So mm. there's something in it for them. And this is just the ultimate episode for kids to watch with their parents who remember Doctor Who from mm. the 70s. It's a way for them to bond over a shared love of this new show. I think it's really, really well judged, but it's certainly not something they would have attempted at all in the first year. Mm. Which is which is the right thing, yeah. you know, mm. to keep that continuity away. Talking of which, of course, Sarah mentions, you know, I thought you died like when you left me and, yeah. and like you didn't come back for me. Mm. Like I found it really interesting because like she got K9 and K9 and company. She was in the five doctors. So she knew that the doctor lived. Yeah. Like I, I know it's a bit of a rewrite, but I'm such an anal retentive <laughs> fan. It's sort of like, it, it really, it's sort of like, well, I then have to go back and say, well, when you meet a future doctor and taken out of time, your memory sort of, gets sort of muddied. Brilliant. Like, you know, when future yeah. doctors meet past doctors, I when they go back into their time stream, it doesn't quite happen. Well, like otherwise the mem- you'd change the chronology yeah. of the show itself. But, you know, even when Sarah left the show, like I just kind of accepted it as a fan, like, you know, that was it and her time is over and, and she recognises that and she moves on. Like I thought she'd moved on, you know. Yeah. So She's to sort of say, Scotland. you didn't come back to me um, and I thought you died you know, the fact that she got K9 indicates that he wasn't dead. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's just it's, this is why this is not like a 10 out of 10 for me. There's these little, little niggly things that get to me as a hardcore fan, which I'm sorry, everybody. Yeah. You know, I can brush over a lot of things, but, you know, my absolute love for Sarah Jane Smith and Elizabeth Sladen means that you've got to get it right. You've got to get it, you've got to get it 101% right. I, I feel like- you can read it as, you know, She's living the emotions of what happened to her. And yeah. she's saying, I thought you died. Doesn't really matter that she got canine later. She thought he died. Yeah. That's, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter that she then found out that, you know, he'd left her a dog and then she met, you know, his rather attractive, um, you know, <laughs> younger, blonder incarnation a few years later. 
because he'd abandoned her. I think that he has just chosen to ignore the five doctors. You know, I think that that's what's happened. And I think that the reason that he's done that is Doctor Who's attitude to continuity is that it has to be subordinate to the truth of the story. Mm. Um, and I think you can head canon it. I think I thought you died probably means, you know, for the first couple of years and that still works. I think it does show up how kind of terrible the five doctors is. (laughs) Not really, because it's doing something else, you know, but, oh, my God, you know, the doctor meets his granddaughter. What would that be like? I don't know. We're not interested, you know. (laughs) The doctor doctor (laughs) and Sarah meet again after all these years. Let's have him, like, look lasciviously at her across (laughs) the console room. It's a bit inappropriate. No, I take both your points. Yes, Jamie, you you make a good point about that. I thought your diet can be just more general rather than... At that particular point in time. But there could have been a little throwaway line of, you know, then K-9 turned up, blah, 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 blah. But it gets in the way of the story. Mm. I think that the weird and sort of slightly disappointing thing is um, that her period of time travelling with the Doctor has had a negative impact on her life, that she hasn't been able to move on, that she's on her own. Like, I'm not saying that being single and, you know, having a career and doing exciting things is a failure, but she plays it in this sort of pained way as if it is a bad thing. And I think that it's important in Doctor Who, and I think Russell sometimes gets this right, to have the Doctor leave his companions better than when he found them. It's the campsite, the campsite rule. Yeah. Do you know, I, I think that's, you know, that line, you know, the most difficult thing is, is coping with what happens or rather what doesn't happen next. Um, I think that's another sort of, well, that's how Russell redefines that relationship between the Doctor and the Companion. It is an allegory, although probably even more than an allegory in this story, uh, of, you know, the ex, you know, the, that, the one that you never sort of get over or whatever the case is. Um, and it's kind of a way that the... The, uh, to a new audience, I, go, I guess, you know, the question of, well, what will happen when Rose leaves the Doctor and, you know, what happens when a, a, any companion sort of leaves the show? That's how it's framed initially. But I think you're right, and it's much kinder and nicer to sort of have the, the companions, as we see later on with Russell, for the most part anyway, when they leave, they go on to better things. Uh, and that's only good and right. But here, uh, that sort of emotional devastation and heft that comes from seeing what happened to a character as beloved as Sarah Jane Smith, who who was never able to get on with her life, that's the emotional scarring that happens to a companion when you leave uh, the Doctor and leave the TARDIS. And that's one of the reasons why I guess I, I moisten up, if I can quote Dan, um, about, about this story. <laughs> Both Stephen and yourself, Nathan, have made a really good point. Perhaps that's why... It doesn't sit well with me because I actually always thought that Sarah would go on to greater and better things. Yeah. Mm. So to see this particular take on it that she feels that she hasn't perhaps gets to me and I'm going to go, oh, I don't like that because that's not what I had in my yeah. head canon as to what would have happened to her. Yeah. And I think that the idea is that this meeting fixes that, don't you think? That she goes off. You know, has her own series. Yeah, she goes off and has her own series, marries that lovely man, Nigel Havers, which is (laughs) bound to turn out well. Um, (laughs) And, I mean, it it does lay the ground for an incredibly successful spin-off. And that's Mm. the other thing that I love about this so much, that JNT recognised how 
Sarah would be able to carry a spin-off series for kids really well. Here it's a harder sell because mm. she's much older and a bit pricklier. But the Sarah Jane Adventures is spectacular. Like, I just adore it. And it's wonderful how great she is in it. You know she what I'm going to say next? Sorry? When are we doing the Sarah Jane Adventures? <laughs> We're not doing the Sarah Jane Adventures <laughs> podcast. Uh, do it myself. <laughs> Nathan, that's a really good point. And again, again, it's sort of to frame it back in terms of the real world relationship sort of analogy that's being used here. It's that importance of closure. How does Sarah Jane move on after decades? And we see her move on through the Sarah Jane adventures and, you know, the wonderful life that she has. It's through that closure that she has to have with the doctor first. And maybe that's just another way that Russell sort of frames it in terms of uh, the companion being kind of like the ex. Yeah. I mean, even when we meet her at the beginning, she's becoming the doctor. Mm. isn't she? She's investigating strange things somewhere, <laughs> and that's clearly what she does. Mm. She's doing sort of John Pertwee's doctor's job. And when we next see her in Sarah Jane Adventures, she'll have the sonic lipstick, you know, she'll have a supercomputer and a base, she'll have her <laughs> own set, you know, um, and she has pretty much become the Doctor with her companions and things defending the Earth. And I think it's wonderful. And I think the show is great. And one of the things that irritates me about Doctor Who criticism is when people dismiss a Doctor Who episode, like this one perhaps, as a Sarah Jane Adventures episode or that it's too much like Sarah Jane Adventures. And I mm. think that's high praise yes i think that's that's a good thing it's a reason to watch it it's a soft pilot really yeah. yes it does feel like that because one of the sequences i don't particularly like is all the kids on the computers like this school has so many computers like even my school doesn't have that many computers <laughs> and they just sort of type away at the things doing whatever and it's all you know the graphics come up on the screen, and I just don't. I actually don't buy it for one single second. As a computer sciences teacher, as a computer science, I don't buy it for a second, and I just sit there going, "This is so, like, we've got no budget. This is like the Sarah Jane Adventures, like, not as not as a bad thing." Um, but then the director's trying to crossfade, and we're trying to have sweeping music and everything. Mm. They're trying to build the tension, and they're just sitting there, and I'm going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. "It looks like a particularly dull double period after lunch, doesn't it?" <laughs> yes, 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 Nathan. <laughs> Did you notice how the um, the kids' headphones all miraculously come off their heads when um when Mickey pulls the plug? <laughs> Brilliant. We might move on to the other big component of this episode, which is K-9. I would love to talk about K-9. I, this is, again, another reason why I cry every time I watch this episode. It's obviously the bringing back of the nostalgic element from my childhood, but also just the fate and that loyalty of of uh, K-9 is something that just will never fail to, to tear me up. And it kind of stems from uh, an old childhood memory that I have, uh, the... There's there's two myths in the ancient Greek uh, you know, literature and and myth that always always bring me to tears. One's Orpheus and, and Eurydice, but the other comes from uh, the Odyssey, and it's the story of Argos, which is Odysseus's loyal hound, who after twenty years waiting for uh, his loyal master to come home, just holds on to dear life until he can see Odysseus one more time, and at that point he finally gives in to death, and that. Oh, my God. He's uh, so wretched and so flea-bitten at the time, too. Like, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Absolutely heartbreaking. <laughs> he is. 
and which is exactly how we see K9 as well. I mean, we see K9 and he's rusted up. He looks a bit disco, says Rose. Um, <laughs> he looks, he, you know, he, he really, really reminds me of, of, of Argos and I'm starting to tear up here, so I should stop. Um, but just that, that sacrifice at the end, it is... Uh, it is meant to be a little bit uh, throwaway, I guess. You know, you know, Anthony had, has that incredible line: "Forget the shooty dog thing." <laughs> um, but it's it's a show of un- unbelievable loyalty. I love the bit where he says bad dog and canine counters with affirmative. <laughs> I just think it's so wonderful. He gets to sass the villain. Um, it's Sarah's reaction that sells it, you know, yeah. because the doctor drags her out of the exploding building and she's in tears mm. and she really, really sells it. I remember a time where I thought, you know, that sort of very presentational style of acting that you did in Doctor Who in the 70s, sure, that yeah. Doctor Who acting, which Sarah was really big on. Mm. And it was kind of like, how is that going to fit into modern television? But she's so great. She's so great in this. And when she does, you know, it was just a daft metal dog and she's crying and the doctor's holding her. It's wonderful. Mm. She really, really sells that, as you've just said. And, Stephen, I've never knew about the story that you've just told, but it certainly – I was tearing up thinking about that, relating it to K9 for the first time ever. So maybe, <laughs> listeners, when I go back and watch this next time, <laughs> I'll be in tears <laughs> all the way through. Um, and, you've but, broken but, him. But <laughs> my, stole, my, my cold stone heart is suddenly, you know, not so thawing. Um, but you're right. Elizabeth sells the destruction of K9 mm, and yeah. the loss of that, but yeah. she also sells it when the TARDIS dematerializes and there he is. And she she kneels down to him and talks about, like, he replaces you with a new model. And you can see the tears in her eyes. And at that point, I'm holding, I'm always holding back tears. She has so many moments in this story that she sells, those moments she sells really, really well. There's one moment I don't think she sells at all, which is when she first sees the TARDIS. She just looks like she's been stunned with a taser. Oh, no, I love that. I love that. I just don't think she sells it. Normally I would expect Sarah Jane to sort of look and then make a reaction, but it's just they've cut to this point where she's already got the reaction. And and every time I watch it, I just go, that's a directoral fault. I don't like that shot. Right. Mm. But Elizabeth just warms up so quickly. Like yeah. It's like she's hardly been away at all. Well, in fact, I think that that scene that you mentioned where she says he replaces you with a new model Mm. is actually, that's actually her properly accepting Mm -hmm. that he's left and met someone new. You know, you get a bit of that in the TARDIS afterwards, you know, at the very end where she kind of invites Mickey (laughs) to join them. (laughs) Um, uh But there's a little smile, a little kind of rueful smile on the words, you know, he'll do that. He will replace you with a new model, which I think is is really very nice. And, and of course, then her, her final lines are actually a reference to survival. Yes. Oh, what does she say? Come on, we've got work to do. Oh. <laughs> so that's her becoming the doctor. Yeah, it really that's is. That's got to be Russell. Yeah. So, would you like to hear some working titles for this story? Yes. Um, so, one of them, which is kind of obvious, was Old Friends. Oh, yeah. And the other one was Black Ops. Oh, dear. Um, obviously, a hangover from when it was uh, set in an army bank. Mm. <laughs> Don't you think it should be Old Friends of Death? <laughs> <laughs> with, with the sting. <laughs> I think it should be called the Krillotane Conundrum. Oh, the Krillotane Conundrum. <laughs> 
<laughs> Everything with a K. <laughs> <laughs> I do need to say that Torchwood is also seen on screen. Torchwood access denied files. Just for oh the, really? Yeah, yeah. When Mickey tries to access something early on when he's talking to them. Oh, so maybe Torchwood have got in and changed the Doctor's Buffalo password. Well, I, I think this is the uh, the Bad Wolf of Series 2, right? So we have continual references. We started in the last episode in Tooth and Claw to, to uh, Torchwood, which will pay off in the last episode. Spoilers. Um, and I think that's why it's occurred or, or shown up on screen just in the background there when Mickey's trying to hack the files. Yes, yes. No, I agree with you. Like, it's, I'm just mentioning that, you know, yeah. Torchwood is mentioned just in case in future podcast episodes that I'm not in, the, the, the team will remember to, <laughs> to, to tell us if Torchwood is uh, mentioned or not. I'm sure it won't come up again. <laughs> Todd said that this was his least favourite season of the RTD era, but I think famously, uh, Stephen, you think rather differently about it. It's actually my favourite of all of New Who, and it's at this point that I'll start cowering from the abuse that I'll get for saying that. (laughs) I'm not commenting. (laughs) (laughs) What is it that you like about it? There's two reasons or main reasons why I think um, it it is the best series and series uh, of the new series. First is there's there's a sort of personal aspect to it as well, and it's deeply personal. But the the more important is that this is what Doctor Who is in the public imagination. It is David Tennant. It is Billy Piper. Um, We have uh, a a number of stories, I guess, that are still remembered fondly by the general public. And it's kind of like the City of Death or or Season 17 of Doctor Who for for the not-we um, you know, when most people are watching, or a lot of people at least are watching, but it's when Doctor Who penetrates the uh, sort of postmodern, post 2000 public consciousness and it sort of really gets a grip of it and never lets go. And even now, you know, you, you talk about Doctor Who with your, with your colleagues who are not Doctor Who fans and they'll talk about David Tennant, they'll talk about Billy Piper. This is the golden age of New Who for me, and I think for many others who are not Doctor Who fans. I would tend to agree with you on that, Stephen. I think. If you talk to the, any of your not-we friends, yeah. do you have not-we friends? <laughs> um, there are only two doctors. There's there's David Tennant and there's Tom Baker. Yeah, that's it. And yep. they always top the polls. Yeah. Like in, in all of those, what, like the YouGov poll. <laughs> no, actually, mm. Tom was quite low down, wasn't he? Um, I think it was third. But they they make that imprint and it it does possibly to the detriment of the of the program going on. It overwhelms what people expect it to be. And when it doesn't fit that mould, say Peter Capaldi, uh, it actually creates a lot of sort of tension and anxiety. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, you think about the Doctor's played by a handsome young lead for the first time, I think, in, in, in David Tennant. Billy Piper is oh, amazing uh, and, and obviously looks the part as well. Um, it is the definition of that relationship, of that sort of dynamic between um, the new modern young Doctor and the new, um, you know, up-to-date, uh, very sort of contemporary companion as well. And they're both incredibly attractive, so that's that doesn't hurt either. Bright young things. Yeah, exactly. And the family audience is 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 tuning in. Yeah, it's very much well as Nathan has pointed out. RTD is a big fan of the Third Doctor and Joe, and it's the same sort of thing that happened back in season eight, mm. where suddenly the show's ratings went up. 
Excellent point. Because people knew what they were tuning into and their expectations of getting this, well, back then, you know, a family show with regular characters and situations like Invasion. So there was a familiarity and a comfort. And here they've got these likeable leads. They've got the stuff that people liked from the first series and they're tuning in and this is their expectation of Doctor Who has been met. But that's okay. I think Doctor Who can do that. And, you know, here, most explicitly in Series 2, Doctor Who does a love story. And I think if there's any kind of genre that will get the uncommitted audience to watch, it will definitely be that. And it doesn't mean that the show is broken forever. It just means that the show does something different for a little while. So, you know, with with the sixth Doctor, Colin Baker's Doctor, we have the Doctor and the exploration of violence. I don't know how intentional it is sometimes, but that's very much a theme and that's, that's what's explored, the relationship between, uh, you know, violence as, I guess, a preoccupation of 80s television and where Doctor Who fits into that. It moves into, you know, uh, McCoy's representation of the Doctor being, you know, much more of a schemer and manipulator. And that's something that maybe we don't see again and we certainly didn't see before. The Ninth Doctor clearly has PTSD and we sort of work through that season using that as a, as a, as a theme. Here, it is the love story and I actually buy into it. I love it. I, there's personal reasons for it as well, but I actually think, again, to go back to, to my main point, people who are not fans will watch this and will say, yep, this, this is resonating, this is relatable, this isn't about uh, space corridors and, you know, Zog monsters from the planet Zog. It's about, uh, you know, a love story between uh, two people who are, you know, rather fun to watch. And that's why Series 2 is such a success, I believe, uh, beyond fandom, uh, not, not so much within fandom. And I am more than happy to accept that as part of that long, rich tradition and tapestry of Doctor Who. It's got to be different and, and new at, at each point. And I think this is what uh, the new Doctor, and particularly in Series 2 with Billy Piper, delivers. It's that romantic lead. I think, too, on top of that, and on top of the fact that the two leads are just having a great deal of fun, I think that this is the first season that goes out after they've seen the reaction to a previous season and mm. after they've tried to make a season. And I think, for instance, they do a better job with the arc. Um, I think that they have a clear idea of what their regular cast is capable of. Uh, they know how much Doctor Who-ness the regular audience is going to tolerate, Mm -hmm. you know, hence this episode. And so it has some advantages over the first series, I think. The first series had the advantage of, you know, it's, I think I said this last week, it's the stories that all of the writers have been gestating for like 15, 16 (laughs) years. Very true. (laughs) But this has the advantage of, you know, our second go at it. Yeah. Russell, Russell had actually pitched this to the BBC when Jane Tranter approached him in 2003 one of the things he pitched had it got a second season was then we'll bring back Sarah Jane and Canine it was one of his pitches and and possibly something she actually hooked on to because she could see he was looking forward further than series one Uh, and it, it might not have happened Liz famously has said that she said no Initially, because she was worried she was just going to be a throwaway kind of reference to the past cameo character in in the story. And when she read the script and realised how much Russell loved her character (laughs) and and what a good job Toby had done with that, um, that that's when she agreed to come back. That's lovely. It's beautiful. That, that, That 
is making me moisten up. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just talk about the plot. What the Krillotane's yeah, grand plan. Yeah, the Krillotane's grand plan. So we're feeding Krillotane oil, explosive Krillotane oil to the children. We've infiltrated the school disguise as dinner ladies. And uh, what's our plan, Todd? What are we trying to achieve here? I don't know, Nathan. No, no, no. I wrote it down, listeners. I wrote it down because I never actually, I actually never remembered what it was. And so that was one of my big bugbears. But they actually did say what it was. What was, it was given some name, the, the what? The Skasis. The Skasis paradigm. That's it, yeah. I, actually, I've forgotten what that is again. Can somebody explain it to me? It sounds me? like something from Dark Crystal. No, it's changing the building skexus. blocks of the universe or something? Or? It's block transfer computation. It's basically, <laughs> that's it. Yes. And I was so upset that they didn't use block transfer computations. They should have called it that. <laughs> you know, it is throwaway, as we've said before. I, Todd's looking at me as if he can't believe I've even brought it up. Why are we talking about this? No, 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 it's good. It's good because this is one of the bugbears I had. But then it actually got explained this time when I watched the episode as opposed to every other time where it was never explained for some unknown reason. There's that big confrontation at the end in the computer room um, and – it's super, super thin, but there is at least an attempt to bring it into the main themes of the main plot and to even have Sarah tell us uh, what we can yeah. learn from their desire to, you know, control reality. And, like, he offers it to the doctor and he offers it to Sarah and she's the one that really yeah. tells well, him, well, no. Well, remember what the offer is. The offer is that you could bring back lots of lost races, including the Time Lords, so you could reverse mm. the one big great personal loss that you've had in your life and Sarah could reverse, you know, the ageing and her loss of the Doctor and all of that sort of disappointment of the past few years and she's the one who encourages the Doctor to accept that and not to try and get around it, that that's part of what living ah, is. Yeah, pain and loss define us. Yeah. Everything has its time and mm. everything ends. Yeah. I love that. So, I mean, I, I, the way that I see it is that um, I'm not sure if it sort of comes across 100% in David Tennant's performance, but the Doctor is meant to be utterly lured by this. It's, you know, Lucifer and uh, tempting Christ in, in, in the desert for 40 days and nights, and he's having this moment where he's like, I could, I could undo all of that, but it's his... Um, Okay, I need to stop because I'm tearing up. Um, but it's his friends, it's his companions who who get who bring the better out of him and, and remind him that actually that's not the way. Um, you aren't the lonely god, and you never have been because you've always got us. And uh, you know that that speech that Sarah gives about pain and loss defining us that you just mentioned, Todd, is is glorious. Um, and that's what snaps the Doctor back out of it. I think it's it's a beautiful way to tie both of those plots together. I've really enjoyed discussing this with you all. I think I'm going to be much more emotional the next time I actually watch this. It's actually going to pull at my heartstrings, all the stuff with Sarah and K9. It already does, but I think I'm going to need a box of tissues right next to me because I, you guys, one of the joys about doing this podcast is the fact that I come in with certain opinions, put them all out on the table, and then you all come back with different opinions and it changes it changes me. And so um, thank you. And that's and I think that's what's gonna happen. 
that's that's how I feel about this. And this episode is so much better um, already in my rewatch. So good grief, it could go up even more. Season two is rising. Series two is rising. (laughs) And it's just a joy to watch Elizabeth Sladen on screen. I mean, that's the biggest thing from this episode. I'm so thrilled to hear that, Todd, because in some way that goes uh, to uh, maybe thank you and return the favour in the way that you've helped me to sort of uh, reevaluate the Colin Baker era. And it was really your views and, and, and arguments on FTE that made me sort of stop and think to do that. So if I'm able in some way to redeem Series 2 in your eyes, then uh, I'm a very happy man. that exploding school sounds like the end of the episode. So let's head off into the future to give a promising young writer the chance to see what he's capable of. We'll see you next week for The Girl in the Fireplace. In the meantime, you can find us at flightthroughentirety.com, Flight Through Entirety on Facebook and Apple Podcasts, and at FTE Podcast on Twitter. You can also find us at our Series 11 flashcast, Jody Into Terror, which is at jodyintoterror.com, Jody Into Terror on Apple Podcasts, and at Jody Into Terror on Twitter. And finally, we can also be heard on Bondfinger, our commentary podcast on the James Bond franchise and an increasingly irrelevant array of other spy films. You can find that at bondfinger.com, Bondfinger on Facebook and Apple Podcasts, and at Bondfingercast on Twitter. Stephen, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on the New to Who podcast on Twitter at New to Who podcast and on Facebook. Uh, please check us out. Until next time, may your systems be improved with new undetectable hyperlink facilities. Thank you very much for listening and good night. See you soon. Ta-ta. Be seeing you. That was Flight Through Entirety, starring Todd Bilby, Nathan Bottomley, Stephen B and James Selwood. Theme arrangement by Cameron Lamb, strings performance by Jane Orberg. This episode, His Little Fanboy Heart, was recorded on the 26th of January 2019 and released on the 31st of March. Although we all enjoyed the opening scene of School Reunion, here at FTE we would like to assure you that we do not approve of the eating of small orphan children, except in cases of moderate to extreme hunger. I was just thinking maybe maybe the um, episode title for this, for this um, story should be... <laughs> Uh, moistening up to an electric dog or two. <laughs> We're not doing that. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, keep apologising. <laughs> That's appalling. I'm sorry, listeners. <laughs> yeah, this episode will never end. <laughs> well, there's been at least one in, in there. No, that's all right. We're allowed to do that. We're allowed to say... I've been really avoiding that. Yeah, no, I don't care. All right. Are there any... uh, Does anyone have a closing statement? Well, my closing statement is that I... Wait wait a sec. Don't start with my closing statement because I'm going to cut the closing (laughs) statement line. (laughs) I just want you to launch in with it. I've really enjoyed discussing this with you all.